Welcome back to the podcast. Today I am joined by the owner of Alaska Fly Fishing Goods in Juneau, Brad Elfers. How are you, man? I'm doing well, Jeff. How are you today? Doing pretty well. I've been paying a little bit of attention to the weather, and it seems like you guys are getting a whole bunch more snow than uh, we are down here in Ketchikan. Oh, yeah. We are just getting pounded with snow. Like uh, I said, it was our second snowiest start to winter in the last 20 years, so uh, it's it's uh, just keeps coming. It's kind of great for uh, for the skiing end of things, and hopefully it'll be great for the steelhead next spring. Yeah. Do you do a lot of uh, skiing up there? What, what do you kind of do in the winter? Oh, yeah, I ski a lot. So <laughs> I was at, like, kind of when I, back in my uh, uh, raft guiding in the summer and then fly fish guiding in the summer, I would uh, keep skiing here in the winter to help make ends meet before I started the shop. So, uh, yeah, never quite gotten over that thing. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great way to kind of make the short winter days go by. Yeah. My, uh, my wife is up here now, and, and she really enjoyed skiing when she was down in Wyoming, and she has some skis and some skins, so uh, we've done some touring, which is a lot of fun, just to kind of get around in some of that backcountry, and so yeah. she's been kind of asking a little bit about um, uh, Eagle Crest, and I don't know if that's like a subtle hint that she wants to go up there and go skiing or, or what, but uh, yeah, we don't, yeah. Uh, we don't have that opportunity down here. Uh, I know that's that's kind of tough, but at least you got the backcountry stuff. And uh, yeah, I'd say that if you are coming through Juneau on your way somewhere, you ought to cut out a couple of days, particularly this year when it's uh, really, really nice and snowy. So yeah. it's a lot of fun. Yeah, for, fortunately for us, though, uh, we have a pretty good uh, winter run of steelhead. So you know, it's uh, no no place is perfect, and I guess uh, Ketchikan and Juneau are that's makes. It balances it balances out. You guys got the scheme, but we got the winter steelhead. I know. I've always been envious of you guys there. You <laughs> 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 just get a little break in the weather, and you can sneak out and go for it. Where uh, it's it's not really a thing here. It's just uh, just does not happen. So yeah, <laughs> we're completely rods are put away for the year uh, until we break them back out in April. So yeah, what's kind of the last yeah. the last hurrah? Um, it's kind of the dollies. Is it uh, coho? What's the what's the end of the run, and when does that happen up there? You know, typically around Juno. I mean, the coho, the wild fish keep coming in, but you know, the fishing for them really isn't that spectacular. Late, like once you get into mid October, you know, they're really colored up uh, and they're not very bitey, so they kind of get real sulky. Uh, and, you know, the dollies being fall spawners, they just kind of disappear. I don't know where the heck they go. Huh. Uh, supposedly they go up to the headwaters and spawn, but you just don't find them. Uh, so kind of our secret little fall thing is uh, the cutthroat. Mm. You know, they are out and about and feeding and uh, taking flies. And, you know, they're they're on the prowl right up until everything freezes over. So that's that's usually our last hurrah is to break out the, the little rods and go chase them around a bit. Yeah. Uh, since so much of the, the water up there, it's, it's, I mean, obviously everything is, is fed by snow melt. Um, but you have a little bit more glacial fed, uh, rivers and, and streams or, I mean, is that, is that true? Is most of the stuff, um, glacial and then how does that impact, uh, what you're fishing for and, uh, impact the seasons? 
Yeah, no, for sure. We definitely have, uh, you know, multiple glacial rivers uh, on the roaded area. Plus, we've also got, you know, a couple of them that, that are, you know, we say semi-glacial and that probably one of the forks that starts them is glacial. Um, so those ones are more Kenai-like, I like to describe them, in mm. that, uh, that fish will stay in those rivers and, you know, dollies will stay in there all summer. Whereas, you know, when you get a full-on glacial river uh, like the Mendenhall, you know, those those fish don't like to be in there for any length of time. And, and you know, the salmon will pass through them, but they don't want to linger in them, so they're usually going up there kind of looking for a, uh, a clear water tributary. Mm. So... You know, they don't offer much in the way of fishing themselves. It's not out of the question, but it's pretty tough. Uh, but if you can find that clear water trib or that mixing zone, then that could be pretty productive. Uh, and just about all those glacial rivers do have something of that, you know, coming in that's clear where, uh, where those fish can... Basically, they've created a new run there, you know, just in, in, in recent memory in some of these rivers because they were completely glaciated, and as the glaciers have retreated, they've... Uh, had all these little salmon runs pop up, which is, is, uh, always encouraging to see. Yeah, for sure. So the Mendenhall is yeah. a very, very small river. Do fish find enough of those smaller tributaries off that, uh, spawn? Is it significant or is it just a little here and there? Or is it going up uh, into no. the lake and then going from there? It's, there's one tributary that's quite well known in Juneau that's called Montana Creek that comes in to the Mendenhall. Uh, that's clear water, and that one just, you know, is, is a little fish factory. I mean, it <laughs> has pinks and chums and dollies and a few cuts and a good coho run. Uh, so that thing is a, a local favorite here in town, and, and it's been a, a very good fishery for many years. Um, but then some of the fish don't go up there. They go right by it. They go all the way up into Mendenhall Lake, which is also glacial, and there's a tiny little feeder creek that's not open to fishing, but, uh, called steep Creek. And, uh, it gets sockeye and it gets, uh, coho to go in there. Hmm. So is that the know, one that's over by the visitor center? Yeah, exactly. It's over by the visitor center. So, you know, people can actually kind of go over the boardwalk and, and, and they have some really cool fish cams too, uh, in there. And then, you know, the bears, love to come in there and mm-hmm. prowl around and, and uh, they've got a pretty neat setup where the people are on elevated kind of boardwalks and they can stay out of the way of the bears but still see them roaming around it's uh it's a good thing because that's it's such a heavily visited area uh it kind of keeps keeps the bears and the people from <laughs> having unpleasant interactions <laughs> yeah you don't want that uh so what about what about Auk lake because Auk lake is in a different it's not in the same runoff area, right? Is that uh, more clear? Is there, are there resident fish in there? Yeah, the Auk Lake is 100% clear um, and has a tiny little feeder creek that actually, if anything, is kind of drying up. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, we still have a lot of glacial rebound going on up here where that land is actually still rising uh, after the weight of the last glaciation has moved on. Uh, and has receded, you know, although it's been hundreds of years, the land's still actively going up. Uh, and so Oak Creek is not much of a, a fish stream anymore, the one that goes into the lake. But, uh, you know, it gets a sockeye run, and apparently those sockeyes spawn in the lake, a lot of them. There's enough upwelling huh. where they can lay their eggs on the 
basically the gravel on the shores of the lake and still have those eggs remain viable. So, um, and it's got a lot of cutthroats and some dollies. It gets a little bit of everything going in there. So it's a, the other really interesting part of Auk Lake is, uh, there's been a weir on Auk Lake, I think since, I want to say since the early 1970s, and they count every single fish that goes in. But not only that, they put the weir in typically in February or March, and they count every salmon fry that goes out. So oh, wow. they're counting, poop, you know, inch long poop fry as they go out. <laughs> uh, so they have some really amazing data going back, but we also use it as an indicator. So when we see, when we see all the dollies start bailing out of Auk Lake in mass, which is usually at the beginning of May, uh, then we know they're bailing out of all the lakes on the road system. Makes sense. And uh, shoreside fishing's about to get real good at that point. So <laughs> that's kind of, <laughs> that's what lets us know that it's time to get out and get after it. Yeah. Is there any ice fishing around there? Uh, very little. Um, People do a little bit, but, you know, typically we're still a little too much in the whole freeze-thaw thing around yeah, here. Right. Where the lakes get kind of sketchy. Uh, they get overflow a lot on top of the ice when they do ice up. So uh, it's not, not a real big thing in Juneau. I think if we had better ice like they do, you know, when you get up uh, into the interior, then more people would do it. But uh, it's pretty rare to see anyone out there doing that. Yeah, I, I would... I would be very, very hesitant to go out on uh, on ice, and up there you're seeing pictures of people that are going out and you know in the Matsu Valley, Kenai Peninsula, places like that that are going out on the ice, and you know after a long time of of temperatures not getting above 15 to 20, um, you know you start getting a couple couple nice inches and maybe a foot or so, but even then I don't know if I would ever drive a vehicle out on there. And- <laughs> They're not shy about doing it up there. Those those work out most of the time. Oh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. It it, uh, it would make me awfully nervous too. So, but I, I think that the fly angler in me, uh, I just need to move around a little bit more than typically yeah. for ice fishing. So, uh, I, I think I'd probably put that in the same category as like trolling for salmon, which I, <laughs> I just uh, I I I, uh, I get it, but I can't do it myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just get too itchy. So, yeah. So speaking of up north, um, one of the reasons I want to have you on is kind of recap my Kenai uh, Peninsula experience um, and uh, just kind of talk over or talk about some things with you. Um, for a wedding yeah. present, uh, a good friend of mine bought your, um, I don't know if it was like the King Salmon Fly Box Kit or... I believe it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there was 40 some flies in there, which was awesome. Just a huge variety, different colors, a bunch of stuff. And then I got a, um, an echo SR 10 foot, 10 weight switch rod. Um, no, sorry, eight weight, eight weight, 10 foot, 10 inch, eight weight. And then I got the uh, Lamson guru reel. So I was totally ready for this thing, but it's tough to fish up there. <laughs> <laughs> that it is <laughs> yeah i don't know if i if i've ever felt like more prepared but also overwhelmed or i don't know you like you you know that the that the glory days of the kenai river when you're picking up you know 60 pounders like nothing you're just hoping for an 80 pound or something like that obviously those days are gone um yeah but man i just and I knew there was going to be crowds. I knew it was going to be combat fishing. But when we fished the Kasilov, 
we did not see one other person um, fishing with a fly rod. Maybe one day there was someone else out there, but like there was no one fishing with fly rods, and it was it was kind of just sad. You know, I had any fly that I could have wanted to. I had I had sink tips, and I was any color, any shade, anything I could have felt like I wanted. Casting great. A couple people said, "Man, you and your wife, you guys are." Great job out there casting. It looks really beautiful. I'm like, I, I hope so, because not much was happening. Oh, yeah. That's uh, that's tough. I mean, I completely can uh, empathize with the situation you were in there, Jeff, in that it's the Kenai itself, as well as, you know, Seeloff and uh, Deep Creek and those types of spots that are just down the peninsula. Uh, boy, it's it's not straightforward fishing, uh, especially the Kenai. And, and there are certainly the guys who are guides up there and the guys and girls, I should say, um, who really know that river. They can find some kings on the fly sometimes. Um, and, you know, I, I would talk to them and they would, sometimes they'd be out there fishing at just, you know, super early before there were boats running up and down the river because, you know, that really puts the kings down boats driving over them yeah uh you know it, it just and the, everything really has to come together in order for for you to you know be in a spot where you've got kings where those kings are happy and they want to eat a fly uh you know and of course the the sheer number of people fishing there is is unbelievable and then probably this year too i mean i just from my anecdotal experience at my shop talking to people from the lower 48 who are, had been cooped up now for over a year and were just dying to get out fishing they were coming to alaska this year and yeah you probably saw that they came in force yeah and uh and, and a lot of them if they're not going out to a fancy place in Bristol Bay or something, they're kind of doing a DIY thing and they're doing it on the Kenai. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm sorry to hear that it didn't, didn't turn out better results. Uh, but that, that situation is certainly one where I've been in there too. And then, wow, I don't know this river real well and it's going to be real tough without some local knowledge or a guy <laughs> before I have a shot at, I mean, that's just rainbow fishing, let alone Kings. Yeah. So, yeah. There was yeah. never a point really where, neither my, my wife or I just thought, Hey, well, let's, you know, let's try something different. Let's do the, let's, let's rent a rod and let's try to do the flossing thing. Like we were, we were fully sold on the, on the fly fishing and it was, you know, maybe a little bit frustrating, but it was fun to, to get there super early. And it was, it was kind of spooky or eerie when we got there on the Kasilov before, you know, there were some people, but not a lot. And then just to start seeing, these silent drift boats just emerge from the fog. It was like some quiet invasion of the river. And then everyone was, was back trolling on there. So you just know there's a lot of commotion in the water and then more people start showing up. But we chose a spot that had some pretty good, um, swinging water that there wasn't a whole lot of people around. So we don't know if it was just kind of tough for them to use their method or what it was, but it was nice that we had some space to, to at least cast and like you feel like you're fishing. You have all the room you want and there's about 100 yards we just kind of had to ourselves. So we may have looked like fools, but um, yeah, it was, it was still still pretty fun. And then the, the Kenai, not nearly as much access and that was a tough thing. Um, yeah. But, you know, we, we caught some nice rainbows on a, on a float trip and that was cool on the on the fly. You're doing It was bobber fishing, but, you know, it's still still fun to get some of those 
really nice rainbows and so both oh, yeah. were both we, we do want to go back and fish both again at some point um maybe not super super soon but it was definitely worth going back and trying to figure things out a little bit yeah it's uh the Kenai is yeah it's its own thing there's, there's nothing else like it in alaska and uh and there is something compelling about it when you're there and, and it's you know like you said when you're fishing rainbows you're fishing out of a boat you're basically bobber fishing but my god who knows what kind of a size rainbow you could hook into and uh and you're gonna catch some fish if you're particularly with a guide uh but yeah that's if you get back up there in September or first half of October, that can just be some spectacular rainbow fishing. Um, but uh, I, I have done the thing where I went up there and a friend of mine lived up in the Matsu and he came down with his raft and we floated it. We did okay. But, uh, I mean, the, the guides up there are really... Or, or if you know a local who's who's uh, quite proficient on the river... It's just like those fish sit in some spots and they don't sit in other spots. And yeah. uh, it, it, it takes a little while to learn where those spots are. So. Yeah. It, having someone that, that knows and can kind of show you, that was the biggest thing when I was, man, maybe second year up here. Um, a buddy took me to this, well, we kind of became friends through fishing and he took me to a spot to fish for steelhead. And just the way he fished certain things, you know, it looked like good water, but you're talking two or three feet can make such a big difference, especially when it, the water is a little bit cold and they might not be moving as much and yeah. just how you fish it and just being diligent. Like he was, he was hitting the spot, hitting the spot. He just adjusted a little bit. Then all of a sudden he starts hook, hooking up and you think, Oh man, that's, that's how you got to fish it. The whole idea that, Oh, there's no steelhead here. Like, no, they're probably there. You know, you just got to fish it correctly. And that's, it's kind of a fun puzzle to figure out. It is, it is, and I remember when I was first kind of new to Alaska, too, I would, uh, I was fishing steelhead with a friend, and it was kind of before strike indicators were really a thing, uh, but, you know, you were throwing your fly upstream and throwing a big mend in there and trying to get it to to drift down, and this guy I was with was catching fish, and I was not, and, uh, and then he finally told me later, he said, yeah, he said, every time you would uh, throw too many mends in there, you were pulling your fly away from the bank. And those fish were just like locked up against the bank. So mm. he was able to stay in the zone actually by not mending as much. So, you know, it's just little things like that, that uh, it's kind of the difference between catching and not catching. Yeah, that makes sense. That yeah, makes sense. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as far as fishing uh, up north um, goes, did you do much on the uh, upper part of the Kenai? Cause that we found that to be just a real, real good time. You could fish more from shore. There's more, uh, public access and you can do some wading and got some nice rainbows, not as big, but we, we really like the, the upper Kenai much more than the lower. Yeah. It's, uh, and you know, they kind of break it up into different sections. Of course, you know, the upper, uh, is coming out of Kenai Lake and is right there. Cooper landing, uh, and that, that is a, just a beautiful section, and, you know, it's one you probably could float quite easily on your own, even if you weren't an expert. I mean, uh, you should have some knowledge of rowing. Um, it's, that, that's a really nice area, and there are some really nice fish in there, um, for sure. So, a little more access. Still, it, it does seem like finding many spots to fish off the bank is kind of tough, uh, since those 
fish are often sitting out a little ways and, and eating eggs where you're trying to get a good dead drift going, which is certainly a lot easier in a boat than it is out for shore. Yeah. Um, but, and there's some of those fantastic little back channels and little braids that break off. Uh, and my gosh, sometimes those things are just loaded with rainbows and you won't see a whole lot of other anglers back in there. And then you can go in there and get out of your boat and, and uh, kind of wade up and down the bank a bit. So that, that, that's pretty neat. Uh, all that fishing, and then you have, they call it the middle Kenai, which you know, the Kenai then flows into Skelac Lake, which is just enormous. Uh, you know, thing looks like an ocean sometimes. And then where it flows back out of Skelac Lake, they call that the middle Kenai, uh, where it flows down. And there's no exact set place where they then call it the lower, and the lower is really much more down by Soldatna, and uh, it, it's kind of the king fishing spots, it's much more slewy, big water, mm. uh, back trolling, uh, but that middle section coming out of Skelag Lake, it does have some enormous rainbows in it, but it's, uh, to me, it seems like really, really hard place to fish unless you have a boat and you can be out in the middle of it, uh, so... Yeah, I agree. The Yepter is certainly probably the most fly fishing friendly uh, shore angler. Feels more like you're fishing a river as opposed to like a gigantic river. Mm -hmm. We got motored yeah, up to the middle uh, when we were out with the guide, and it was, I think, the, maybe the second day that it had been open to motors. So okay, pretty much yeah. everybody was motoring up there. And, um, I thought this is great because it looked like there was some access but you couldn't get like from a road into that spot so we couldn't try to recreate the experience that we were having because we weren't too far from shore but it was just there was no way that you could drive out the road the next day somewhere and then start hiking and try to find the same spot it was just not going to happen so that was kind of disappointing but yeah yeah we definitely got some nice rainbows there yeah yeah for sure and it, it is i think it's tough access and uh some of the access points too that i've seen in some of those areas i mean you're kind of be like walking down a slough that's just like brown bear central you know <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like oh man i don't know if i really want to do that so yeah uh, yeah that was yeah, another thing that was itself. different sorry go ahead well, I was just saying access on the Kenai. i mean there's just a lot of private property and a lot of kind of hard like it's hard to get your bearings for how you would actually get there. So Yeah. The the other thing that was a little bit kind of unnerving for us was just the brown bear potential. You grew up on Prince of Wales Island. We're used to black bears. And, you know, here around Ketchikan, we're used to black bears. And just the possibility of a brown bear being around. And, you know, you they're definitely around. Um, so yeah. just making noise yeah. and things like that. And we were we did, did a hike to ski lack didn't fish but just kind of did a hike and we're looking over um just beautiful mountain range and everything and i think a week after we left someone had been uh, attacked um they had a dog with him or something like that and the guy got bitten in his forearm and i don't know if it's the exact same spot or the same trail but you just think man like they're around you know, like the chances oh, yeah. of having an encounter is probably very, very low. The chance of having an encounter that ends in any sort of attack or any sort of contact is probably even lower. But, you know, it's definitely in the back of your mind if you are, you know, like you said, kind of snaking your way through these sloughs or some of this back stuff. You know, it's um, it's it's something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just no way a river 
that's got that many salmon in it isn't going to have some just whopping big brown bears up there. And yeah, you just don't want to surprise one or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty spectacular place. It's a you know you just have to go up there. I think with the attitude that yeah, this place is going to be busy. There's going to be people around, but uh, I'm going to go up there and join the party, so to speak. So, yeah, <laughs> then it's fun. Yeah. So, have you uh, done much out in the Bristol Bay area? Uh, I have. I, uh, you know, I, I, I always want to do more, but I uh, try to get out there every other year or so and, and typically do a float trip with friends. We just kind of do a DIY and usually fly out either Bethel or Dillingham or King Salmon and, uh, and then float down the river for a week or so and camp along the way and fish. And, uh, yeah, I really enjoy doing that. That's uh great way to get out in the country and uh the fishing spectacular most of the time anyway and it's uh yeah that that's a favorite thing of mine to do do you do some of that mouse stuff i it seems like a really uh, hip thing to do um just mouse fishing just twitching yeah, bringing know, those it, things across and getting some huge rainbows yeah it's it's really you know, the, the mousing season really is, is basically you can divide that trout season into uh, mousing and streamers and that kind of stuff, which they'll take in late June and most of July. And then as soon as the salmon are in and they start dropping eggs, it gets real hard to get them to come up for mm-hmm. a mouse anymore. They right. get on the egg flesh thing. Um, not that you can't, but it's just August is hard to get them to eat mice, but... I've had some spectacular trips where they they really were into the mouse, and uh, you know it's pretty hard to take that fly off. Even if you catch more of them on a Dalai Lama, you know, just seeing those repeated takes and having them come out and crush it, and you know, and it's not just rainbows; it's like dollies eat them and trailing oh, yeah. mice too. It's like wow, I didn't know they were so ambitious, but they uh, they <laughs> go for it. <laughs> what a lot it, of protein, I guess. Yeah. What is your favorite uh, fly? I know it's. It's such a difficult question to ask because, you know, you're talking rainbows in Southeast, you're talking rainbows on the Kenai, rainbows, you know, more in the interior, but uh, is there a a pattern that you just love to fish or, or always use if you can? Well, yeah, I mean, this is not, not going to be an original answer at all. I'm going to apologize that right now, but if, if I don't know what they want to eat, I'm tying on a black and white Dalai Lama (laughs) and and they're, they're going to eat it. (laughs) And it's, it's unbelievable, uh, how many different parts of the state that fly works in and, uh, uh, and just how effective it is, especially when it's like not obvious what they want to be eating. It's a, just a tremendous searching fly, uh, so, yeah, you know, I fish that one a lot. But then, I, you know, of course, I like to mix it up. I, uh, you know, and, and on those float trips, although bead fishing is you know, super effective, I usually have a rod strung up with a bead, but then I'll have another rod strung up with, uh, you know, streamers or something like that because I'd probably rather rather not watch an indicator if I could get them to yeah. take something on the swing or take a mouse. Or you know, even occasionally they'll eat big dry flies up there. So, uh, yeah, it's just fun playing with all the different stuff that they might want to eat. Yeah, have you done much um, like warm water fishing? One of my favorite things is just plopping down a hopper next to some shore and hoping there's a brown trout there. You know, to be perfectly honest, Jeff, I have not done a tremendous amount of kind of classic Rocky Mountain West. Uh, you know, 
hopper fishing, all the hatches, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I really came into my fly fishing up in Alaska. You know, I fished, I fly fished some down in Washington state where I grew up, but it frankly wasn't particularly great fishing. Uh, it wasn't, you know, Montana, Idaho, Colorado, good fishing. So most of what I've done is up here. So I, I really don't have a ton of experience with that stuff. And, you know, and once I opened a fly shop, it's like, well, now I don't, my <laughs> summers are not really mine. Mine yeah. go down to the lower 48 and go fishing. So, yeah. Yeah. You don't uh, endure the winters up here to just leave for the summers. You know, it's, you paid the price, oh, yeah. you might as well uh, reap the rewards, but. Yeah, it is fun right. to go out and see some of those other things, but it, it is somewhat of a sacrifice. It's fun to experience that, and it is just so different, you know, when you're seeing a, a trout rise to a dry fly, you know, and it's 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 a different type of fun than, than hooking a king, you know, trolling or mooching or anything like that. Like, well, yeah, you know, 60-pound king is a 60-pound king, or I've, I haven't caught a 60-pounder, but, you know, a nice 35, 45-pound king, you're going to have a lot of meat. It's going to be great, great picture, but... I don't know seeing something rise to a to a dry fly, whether it be a, a, a grasshopper pattern in in Montana, or you know st uh, stripping a, a mouse across the surface. It's just all so different and also fun. It's fun to have experiences, but you know having a couple oh, yeah. couple of different things dialed in is is a lot of fun. And if trout fishing up here and salmon fishing up here is your thing, like it's tough to leave. It, it kind of is, and I would love to do more of that because I'm certainly not uh, trying to make any kind of disparaging remarks about that. Because it's it's kind of I've been on some days uh, guided trips. My wife was going to graduate school back east in uh, Connecticut. She was going to Massachusetts, but I drove down to Connecticut where there's some very good trout fishing. And uh, and oh my god, the, you know the hatch would go off. It you know. 10 30 in the morning or whatever time it was and i had a guide with me and you know you cast your tiny little dry fly out there but it was like i was like how on earth do i tell you oh. one's my fly and which one's a real bug because <laughs> there's so yeah. many out there and you'd be like yelling at me to set the hook and i was like looking at something that wasn't even my fly yeah <laughs> left and right uh so yeah it was a whole whole different game but then you know the the hatch was over at whatever time one in the afternoon and he's like yep that's it for drives for the day he said how do you feel about casting streamers <laughs> like well that's what i'm good at actually yeah. <laughs> so that sounds real good to me <laughs> yeah i saw on the on the fall river in, in northern california we had that i stayed there was like a shoulder season special at this little lodge thing so uh, we just got the bunkhouse, which was like the, I don't know, the employee quarters. So it was, it was cheap and we could afford it, but, um, it was size 22. Um, and just like, man, really this thing, you know, so you have to go super light tip it. And then they said, yeah, yeah. you know, go to the river and fish this, um, into, uh, from 10 30 to 10 45. I thought, Oh really? You know, 15 minutes. Yeah. You, you know, I just thought this person was being elitist or pretentious or something like that and, and it just 10 30 it just started and it was crazy and i had no clue where my fly was everything was just exploding all around it i would just set the hook nothing set the hook nothing and then at 10 45 just like that turned off and it was over and i thought what is going on and <laughs> crazy absolutely crazy yeah yeah that's that's all so much fun so you know, yeah. just yeah, the the breadth of experiences you can have is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. 
So as a, as a shop owner, I'm sure you've seen a lot of things, fads and whatnot come and go. And over your kind of fly fishing life, where have been some of the biggest advances? Has it been like advances in flies, rods, reels, waders? Like where have you seen the biggest growth? Uh, you know, I, I would say, uh, cause that's a like super interesting just to watch things. You know, I've had the shop for coming up on 23 years here. Uh, just to see they, they tend to go in like quantum leaps like you have a quantum leap in quality and then it's just little teeny incremental leaps for like five or six years and then another quantum leap uh where it's just like oh my goodness and you know but the one thing that you know probably anglers of our generation who <laughs> knew the joys of fishing in neoprene waders and by joys, I'm, of course, being facetious because <laughs> it's horrible. Uh, if there's one thing that I would not go back to, uh, you know, I would go back to, even if I had to fish a fiberglass rod and a Kluger metalist reel, I would do that before I would give up my Gore-Tex waders. Probably <laughs> <laughs> the thing that, you know, throughout the day keeps you the most comfortable and the technology has gotten so good Uh you know, and they breathe so well, and they just have gotten so much more durable. Uh, that That's probably the most amazing, like, going from 1998 when Gore-Tex waders were pretty awful. They just, they hadn't quite gotten them figured out yet. Uh, we used to joke they would just leak right out of the box. Because you know, <laughs> you'd kneel down, and the water would actually, like, shove, you know, we'd get pushed through the Gore-Tex in reverse. They just, it wasn't quite there. But once they got it figured out, then, you know, they're amazing. Uh and probably the other couple of things is the flies have gotten so much better, uh, you know, and that, that goes entirely to just the angling community in general, you know, because these are all invented by, you know, by and large, by non-professionals. They're just people who come out with something that's just a, better than the last one. And, you know, the flies we fished with in the 90s were just way, way less effective than the stuff that you can get these days that you know, has so much more jigging motion to it or, you know, even the, you know, the dry flies that have incorporated synthetics in them. So they float so much better. And, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing to see how creative people are in their tying and how that then, you know, kind of gets dispersed out to the great wide world. So those are, those are a couple of my favorite things. Yeah. With flies, it seems interesting like you can have really beautiful flies, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be better. Um, but yeah, what you were saying yeah. as far as like, especially with, with dry flies and using synthetics and things like that, like, is there still a market for, or people still being, you know, tricked into buying flies that look really good, but it really doesn't help uh, at all is just salesmanship there or are the flies in, like by and large way, 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 like actually that much better uh you know some of the most effective ones these days are not by any means the most beautiful flies um you know and some of these flies that have you know would take you 30 minutes to tie one of them uh you know and then you promptly lose it on a stump when swinging it across the river you know i don't know that they fish all that much better than their uh compatriot that's you know tied out of rabbit strips and a big cone head uh, so I don't think that, and but we always find it's weird that there are some of these flies that just look fantastic. And you look at them, you go, oh, my God, that thing's going to catch fish. 
and they just don't. Mm. <laughs> you know, and they're very popular for a year or two, and then I think everybody fishes them, and they don't catch much. And then, uh, so we're all sometimes kind of on the learning curve together, you know, because I certainly don't want to be putting flies in my bins at the shop that aren't good. Yeah. Sometimes you bring in stuff, and you're like, oh, that's going to kill it, and then... <laughs> <laughs> yeah some of those ones with like the silly legs and the like the squid row um mm-hmm. they just look so shrimpy and so no like there's no way like i want to eat this thing it looks so so good um and i think sometimes that makes you fish it harder and better because you're confident with it so maybe it's a uh, not necessarily the fly it's it's the attitude with which you fish it which can make a big difference yeah, yeah, there is some of that for sure. And then also these flies can be like hyper-regional, you know. And by mm-hmm. that I mean that uh, there are flies that just crush it here in southeast Alaska, anywhere along the coast, all the way up through Cordova, out to Kodiak. They're just wicked, and they don't work for beans up in Bristol Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and oftentimes it's more the color than it is the actual pattern Uh but, you know, there's a couple of flies that came out of Bristol Bay from some really good lodge fly tires, like guys who are guides that were really good. And they work great up there. And they just, I can't catch anything with them down here. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I sometimes it's just like, well, maybe that's a great fly on that river, but it doesn't work on this river. Yeah, so I found with... Keeps it interesting. Sometimes size is the biggest thing. You have this awesome, great-looking steelhead fly that just looks... Everything, every bit like a steelhead fly should look, should work or look, but then it just doesn't work, and you just do the same color, but just much much smaller, and you end up getting strikes. And you just kind of wonder, well, why is that? I mean, the color's the same. Is it really just about size? Like, what happened here, or did the size change the the action or anything like that? It's very curious and interesting that 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 they would have you know rivers where it would work and rivers that wouldn't, but it's. Again, yeah. part of that puzzle. Uh, yeah, and steelhead, too. I mean, they they take everything to another level of why on earth did they eat that and not this. Uh, and, you know, it's like every water level and temperature change with those fish that can just drive you bad and trying to figure out why they don't want to eat or why they do want to eat. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty fun, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's a little maddening at times, too. Yeah. As far as rods and reels go, what have you seen as far as, you know, big advances? Like once things kind of went to graphite, like is, I mean, was that kind of the huge jump? Is it, you know, is there, is there a lot of uh, room for improvement at this point? Or is it hard to imagine that it could get much better than what we have here? Yeah, you know, I always hate to say that, but, you know, uh, you know, they first when they went from fiberglass to graphite in the early nineteen kind of eighties, late seventies, early eighties. You know, that was a pretty big jump in just rods that you know were more responsive and uh, were easier to cast. Uh, but then it seemed like all the way through. I mean, they got incrementally better as we got into the nineties, but they were still kind of, for lack of a better word, they were kind of clubby. You know, they were sort of heavy. Uh, the ferrules were really thick. So that was back when people still like two piece rods because, you know, when you have thick ferrules, you can really feel each one of them on the rod. So it doesn't feel like one smooth casting motion. It feels like, Oh God, I've got four chunks of rod here. Uh, and then Sage came out with a rod called the XP in 
gosh, the late 1990s. And they just hit it out of the park with that thing. It was lighter. The ferals were super fine. Uh, and I still have a couple of them that I just refuse to get rid of. Uh, and they're just, they were the predecessor to everything that's come since then of these very responsive, light, uh, durable, but really just beautiful casting rods. And, and, you know, in many ways, I think that's helped fly fishing grow in that it doesn't, you don't have to spend the first three years of your fly fishing career just trying to get a 40 foot cast down because, uh, these rods, if, if you're even in the ballpark of doing the right thing, will at least get you in the game of making the cast to get it out there. Uh, so yeah, the rods, but where, where they go from here is kind of, uh, it does seem like that the entry and mid-level rods are getting better and better, you know, cause your top end rods now are, God, they're pushing a thousand dollars. So we're starting to see them backfill a little bit. And now there's this like a whole lot of rods that are in that 450 to $650 range. So coming in at, you know, half the price of a top end rod that are not that far down the ladder in terms of quality. Uh, and maybe five years ago or so they would have been the top end rod. So, uh, it, it's kind of nice to see how they're really kind of the, the rising tide is bringing all these rods up in their quality. Yeah. It's interesting to see when things get discontinued and you kind of wonder, well, why are you discontinuing it in the new thing that's replacing it? Is it really an improvement or are you just rebranding it so that, you know, you can sell more because money is not in, the one thing that lasts forever, you know, money is in the consumable thing. It's in the replace this because, you know, it's, oh, it's a little bit better or the names changed a little bit, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, no, I think it's, it is a mix. I mean, on the one hand, the fly fishing industry is not nearly as shameless as for instance, the ski industry, which, you know, every year they put a new top plate on their skis with a different color and it's the exact same ski underneath for <laughs> four years in a row. But, they, you know, they make everything obsolete every year. So, I mean, that that's pretty shameless, I think. Uh, they don't really do that in fly fishing. It, when it's a new rod, it's a whole new rod. Uh, yeah. It may have characteristics of a previous one, but it's not going to be the same rod with a new paint job. Um, and typically, you know, I, I would say, like, brands like Sage or Loomis or Scott, I mean, you're going to be looking at you know, a good four, five, six years of, you know, this is our best rod and we're sticking with it uh, before they come up with something that is noticeably better and then discontinue that rod. So, uh, which I which I like and I appreciate that because uh, nobody wants like to feel like they just bought the latest and greatest and then, you know, <laughs> eight months later find out that it's not. Yeah. Um, but they're they're continually working to make rods lighter and and easier to cast, and uh, I just wonder how far can they go with that. So. Yeah, I would kind of watch some of those, the, like the the professional bass tour, the bass masters, and look at all these these spin rod uh, fishermen who had you know five or six or seven different rods, and just like look at those people. Do you really need that? But you know, you see it in fly fishing starting to really happen too. You have a specific rod that can meet a specific fish and it does make a huge difference. When I visited a buddy that, um, lives in California and he bought a boat. So he was doing a lot of that really good, uh, bass and striper fishing on the Delta with his, uh, with his fly rods. And you, he'd have four or five different rods ready to go and they're just rigged up and they just fish different. It's, 
it really does yeah. make a huge difference. And um, I got to cast his uh, his Sage X. Uh, wait, was it the X? Yeah, that's their, so. their, their big dog right now. Yeah, that thing was awesome. Um, oh man! <laughs> if, wow, yeah, it was it was a ten weight because you got to you got to huck some big stuff, and you know you have a chance for you know twenty thirty pound stripers, which is pretty sweet. We didn't catch anything very big, but yeah, in order to, to double haul, like you need some that, that thing is a brute, but you know you don't feel like you're you need rotator cuff surgery at the end of the day. It was it was amazing how you could chuck those things and still feel feel pretty good about it. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. It's, and you know, I've, I've always been a proponent of, you know, you don't have to have top end gear to go out and play. I mean, that that you know, I've never liked it when some shops try to make you feel like you, you know, unless you're buying the top, you can't be in the game. And it's not true. But on the other hand, the top stuff is unbelievable. Yeah. You saw when you cast that Sage X, I mean, you don't have to have it, but oh my God, it is worth it. If it's in your, if it's in the wheelhouse of something that you can afford. Yeah. It's uh, it's worth every penny, but I, I get it that it's a whole bunch of pennies. Yeah, yeah, you have to fish enough to be able to know what you want in another rod or what you want. What what you like this rod, but it could be this, or it could be maybe a little bit longer, a little bit more responsive, or something like that. So then, when you do upgrade from the starter or that middle of the road, you want something that's more like like this and then you can sense the difference otherwise you just bought a thousand dollar rod you don't know why and you don't know why it's better than the three hundred dollar starter right or, or you may have found that you know the, the rod you bought maybe wasn't quite what you wanted to do for instance if i was doing a lot of steelhead fishing you know i like a little softer rod so i can roll cast it and that's as, as you know jeff that's what we do in southeast Alaska because we can't back cast very often because of all the brush behind us mm-hmm so that, you know, that might be a little longer rod. Maybe it's a 10-foot rod or maybe it's a switch rod that's, you know, like that eight weight that you have. Uh, I mean, that's a beautiful rod for, for steelheading. Uh, but if I'm going to be launching flies off the beach for cohos, well, that might be a different eight weight rod than the one I just described. You know, it might be faster action and I'm casting in the wind. And so it's just kind of thinking about or, or talking to the local shop about what, what I want to do and what rod would be a good match for that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, that's a perfect lead-in. Can you? Uh, what would you kind of recommend, and what do you have available in the shop for uh, someone who's looking to either upgrade their steelhead game for this spring or um, just get into it? What would you recommend? You know, oh gosh, there's so many like fabulous rods out there. Uh, and, and so much of it has to do with, you know, what, what you can afford and what makes sense so that it's uh, something that you're not upgrading, you know, six months into the game where you're like, oh, I wish I bought something better the first go around. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these rods, uh, you know, are just wonderful casting rods. And, and a lot of the ones that are in the entry level, which might be in that kind of 200 to $400 range, are... Uh, are very, they're multi-purpose, which is nice. They're usually soft enough where you can kind of get the feel of casting. They're not so stiff that it's hard. And, and then they're soft enough so you can roll cast. So, you know, that could be like the Echo Boost is a very popular rod in that price range. And the Sage Foundation is another one that are, you know, not terribly expensive, uh, but something that somebody who's getting into it could feel good about having and know they're going to fish it for a number of years. Uh, 
and be able to cast it pretty pretty easily and you know know that it has a lifetime guarantee so if they go out there and accidentally have a little accident which does happen that uh you know you pay the fee and you get up get the get out of jail card so mm-hmm. And what would be uh, the difference between a, you kind of touched on it a little bit um, with uh, some of the, the inability to backcast in some of these southeast Alaska rivers, but a single-handed rod for steelhead versus a switch rod for steelhead down here? Sure, yeah, you know, a switch rod is, uh, you know, of course, you know, for people aren't familiar with them, they're basically halfway between a single-hand, for instance, nine-foot rod, and a spay rod, which, you know, is going to be 12 and a half feet and up. So these usually clock in at somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 and a half or 11 feet. And you can cast them single hand, just like a regular rod, or you can cast them with two hands, like a spay rod, um, you know, as well as, you know, a whole bunch of other techniques. Um, Typically, though, I don't usually recommend people jump right into a switch rod if they haven't really fly fished before, because they're, they, they take just a little bit of a feel because they, they feel you know, it's a lot more rod out there and uh, they can be a little unmanageable and unwieldy if you've never done it before, uh, which, you know, if you, you're willing to jump in there, it, that's okay. You can, but uh rank beginner probably would have a, a little more difficulty getting it figured out. So that I, I usually recommend people just starting out, start with something in that nine foot range and, you know, like in the, an eight weight because uh, they can use that for everything you know they can go steelhead fishing they can go coho fishing they can go hopefully catch a whole bunch of pink salmon when they're in and heck you can even catch dollies and cuts and it's overkill but at least you can do it all mm-hmm. um, but you know if you want to if you already have a little experience and you want to give switches a try they're a ton of fun as you probably found um, and they're great for swinging flies they're great for nymphing um, you know, you can roll cast with all that length, you can roll cast a long way. Um, and so it's kind of counterintuitive that on a small stream, you'd want a longer rod, but that's actually can be really helpful when you're, when you just don't have the ability to throw a back cast cause you're just going to throw it into the bushes behind you. So mm-hmm. yeah, a seven or eight week switch is a lot of fun for, uh, for a lot of our Southeast fishing. Yeah. And then, uh, real, some people would think that, well, the technology in the rod, cause that's what you're casting. So if you're going to be cheap on something, just get any old cheap reel to put on there. Um, what, uh, what would you say to someone who wants to go really, really cheap on a reel? Or what would you say to someone about, or who's asking about how important a good reel is? Yeah. I would, you know, I usually start off with, well, uh, if you're just targeting Cutthroat or Dolly Varden, uh, you probably could get away with a very inexpensive reel because they, you know, they don't really put any stress on the reel, and you're typically fishing them in fresh water. So, what the heck? Go for it. Um, and I will say though, like I, I have folks that get some of these starter packages that have about, you know, I'm going to say about a fifty dollar reel in them, and they get them for an eight weight. So they're, they're going out and chasing cohos and, you know, those things are going to last a matter of months, uh, not years, because they're, they're just not designed to have a violent 14-pound fish <laughs> tearing at their insides. Uh, and, and Alaska just puts an amount of stress on reels. It's unbelievable in that, one, you have big fish. 
two, we all seem to have like tons of either grit or sand or glacial silt that just gets into everything. Uh, we have salt water. And then the final thing is you're probably not going to go out and catch one fish a day. I mean, if you're out there, uh, you know, you might catch, if you're catching pinks, you might catch 15 of them. Or if you're catching cohos, you might, you can catch multiple fish in a day. So, you know, everything you're doing is just multiplying stress on that reel. So, uh, the cheap ones get exposed pretty, uh, pretty quickly we uh we had a photo years ago i don't know if i still have it around but it was our garbage can at the shop in the middle of coho season and it must have had a half dozen reels people oh. brought in that had been destroyed by cohos. <laughs> I mean, the handles breaking off or the real foot like breaking off and then the reel falling you know on the beach and uh <laughs> it was it was pretty funny nice. you know they were cheap old reels and people were okay with it they were like okay i guess that was my hint that i need to step it up a little yeah uh, so yeah it was uh it was pretty funny but yeah it's it's probably if you're buying an eight weight you might want to invest in at least a moderately good reel or expect to be buying a new one in short order mm-hmm. and then uh <laughs> fly line what uh what do you got for that um fly lines have just gotten incredibly good and you know probably for the last i'll admit uh when I first started the shop, I probably didn't think about fly lines as much as I should have. You know, it was like, all right, we'll put a weight forward floating on there and then you'll be good. Uh, and, and people were fine, but the lines have gotten so much better. And then we're finding, you know, as we've gotten more into it, you know, certain rods really just match up with a certain line and they go from good to just exceptional. Uh, so, you know, some of these tapers, they're all, they, they may all be like offshoots of a weight forward line where they're, you know, larger in diameter on the front 30 to 40 feet. But the way the weight is distributed in there, perhaps they have like a little double bump in terms of, you know, they get fat and then right towards the tip, they get even fatter again to help turn over the fly. Um, some of these lines, and, and if you get the right one on that rod, which we play around a bunch at the shop trying to find, you know, which which rods and which lines like each other, uh, it's incredible how much a line can make a difference uh, just in, like, kind of making that rod really sing and really zip the fly out there and, you know, make you look like a superstar when you're casting. So <laughs> that's, all, that's all good stuff. <laughs> nice. And then as far as flies go, you guys have full-on... Uh, little kits or little um, what uh, what do you what do you call them on there? Just like boxes of of pre-stock stuff that should work. And like I said, that king, king salmon stuff, such a variety. I felt that colors and sizes and patterns were all represented there. So I def, definitely felt uh, well armed. Do you uh, have those for steelhead too? We do. We uh, we kind of hang our hat on our flies. That's kind of what we're the most proud of. And uh, you know. One of my longtime employees there, Mike Cole, has been designing and, and uh, coming up with these just some amazing flies for years. And we, we do, we pack up all kinds of different fly selections, but we try to make them really specific so that they're not just general vague ones where half of them are useless, you know. And uh, for instance, when your friends called Jeff and said, oh, I want to get a King Salmon selection, the jack well, we're like well where's he going because that's going to make a difference mm-hmm. on what we put in the box so we, we trick them out too and uh so we tried to trick them out for that keen eye type area uh 
and people always like they'll just pop in the little customer notes when they're checking out they're like oh these boxes are for a trip i'm going such and such a place and then we can we can uh but uh maybe just trade a few flies in and out so it's a little more customized for them but yeah we do that stuff for steelhead and gosh that's coming up before we know it we're going to be into steelhead season yeah goes quick well, we're coming oh, up on an on an hour here, man. I really appreciate uh, everything that uh, you provided. Always, uh, always great to talk to you. Could you have um, a little pitch for the store? Where can people find stuff? Do you have anything going on? Oh well, you know, I mean, if if, uh, if you're not in Juneau, which I know lots of people aren't, of course, <laughs> we're a small town. You know, it's AlaskaFlyFishingGoods.com, and we got everything on there. Uh, and we always encourage people to reach out to us, too, because I know coming to Alaska, it's confusing as heck as to what you actually need because it's such different flies. So, uh, you know, we're always happy to help people get the right stuff so that, you know, when they go on that, you know, really dream trip that they've got the, the right stuff uh, or, or if they're being guided, the guide opens the boxes like, oh, yeah, this is good stuff. Uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's what makes us the happiest. So, yeah, reach out and we'll be happy to help. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again, man. Really appreciate it. Um, look forward to uh, okay. seeing some 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 pictures of some nice spring steelhead this year. I know, man, and uh, hopefully you guys will get a break in the weather down there and be able to get out and you can send me a picture. I'm I'll be dying to see some steelhead photos in February when we're still locked in the deep freeze <laughs> up here. <laughs> yeah, I would lo- love to make you jealous. That's uh, that's one that's one of the goals. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to me. All right, cool. Take care. All right, you too. Bye.